Hello everyone and welcome back to Air Magique. Let's talk about the most magical place in Europe. I'm Eric and this is the episode for the second week of May. Yes, to celebrate the reopening of Phantom Manor after its, well, more than a year-long refurbishment, we will be taking a look at the manor's fascinating history and analyze some design decisions and of course talk about all the new details, <laughs> if that's even possible. <laughs> but we'll definitely chat about some of the highlights. But before we get to Phantom Manor, some park news. Leaked concept art reveals some budget cuts were made to the New York-themed Marvel Land, and the Iron Man roller coaster was originally a Spider-Man roller coaster. <laughs> you guys, this is one of the most epic leaks I've ever seen. Not only was some of the concept art that will never be leaked, but the entire show building model for the redesign of Rock and Roller Coaster. The concept art shows a portion of Walt Disney Studios Paris as it appears now, followed by plans to turn the area into a Marvel fight version of New York City, home to Iron Man and Spider-Man. This original concept art with its New York-esque buildings and overhead tram remind me of the American waterfront over in Tokyo Disney Sea. The tram would have been a real attraction that parkgoers can ride. Way in the back of the concept art, we can see the Rock and Roller Coaster show building is covered by a city skyline, which looks super cool with a large skyscraper-type building, and if you look closely there, it appears to be a humanoid blue and red thing climbing the structure, which I'm assuming is Spider-Man figure. On the right-hand side, we can see that Armageddon has been completely covered up by a row of urban-looking brick buildings, plus some kind of futuristic-looking, I want to say, generator, with the Stark Industries logo on top of the building. Regrettably, this seems to have been downscaled to the more budget-oriented Avengers campus design that we will be seeing at Anaheim and Disneyland Paris. The second part of this huge leak are all the model pictures. The model is really impressive, you guys, and instead of Iron Man, it features a Spider-Man overlay, with the addition of larger sets replicating the streets and skyscrapers of the Big Apple. One of my favorite details is there appears to be a scene right when the trains pass over a straight safety block break, which has been turned into a bridge with little light bulbs and green goblins standing at the top. It's also crazy just how close the coaster track gets to the buildings. I'm sure while riding the attraction this would add a huge surge of adrenaline. <laughs> There's even this bent forward building structure which is probably done due to sight lines on the coaster, just to make sure the folks in the rear know what's going on. Well, either way, it just envelops you completely as a train passes the loop. It's likely the finalized version will trade in a few of these physical sets for screens and projections. <laughs> budget. Which is sad, but you know. Spider-Man and the Green Goblin appear at several points along the track. Funnily enough, on the model, they used action figures, <laughs> which looks really cute, but you know, it Gets the point across. Rock and Roller Coaster Avic Aerosmith is set to close for the Iron Man overlay on September 2nd, 2019, which continues Disney's trend of retheming already existing park attractions to match its current IP, like with Tower of Terror over at Disney's California Adventure. It's still unclear what exactly we're going to get, but it's likely we won't get anything from this superb model. In other news, a German tourist has been apprehended for flying a drone over Disneyland Paris. French newspaper Le Parisien reported that a 35-year-old German tourist was arrested Wednesday evening after they were allegedly caught flying a drone inside Park Disneyland. The individual in question was apprehended by security during park hours at approximately 9.45pm near City Hall on Main Street, USA, in Disneyland Paris, and placed into custody at the Chassis police station. 
There, he told authorities that he had spent the day at the park and that he was trying to take souvenir photos and videos before returning home on Thursday. The police erased his photos and videos and returned the drone. He was given a warning and released without charges on Thursday morning. So, he got off lucky, as the area above Disneyland Paris is restricted airspace, which means no drones allowed. Now, I get it, drones are super cool, and who doesn't want to get a sneak peek behind the scenes, but breaking the law is just not worth it. These regulations have been put in place for a reason, and at the end of the day, drones may be sold as toys, but really they aren't, especially when used in situations where they could cause injury, or it's just plain illegal to use them. Honestly, this is kind of a throwback to 2014, when a 53-year-old photographer was prosecuted for flying a drone over the parks and backstage areas, and ended up facing a possible six months imprisonment before the case was dropped. And last but not least, Disney recaps the new Marvel attractions coming to California Adventure, Hong Kong, and Paris after Avengers Endgame shattered records with $2.2 billion in the box office worldwide. But you won't have to wait until 2020 to get your first taste of a Disney Marvel attraction. The all-new interactive attraction Ant-Man and the Wasp Nano Battle debuted at Hong Kong Disneyland to semi-positive reviews. For those of you who don't know, the new attraction is basically Buzz Lightyear's Astro Blasters version 2.0. Disney has upgraded the technology and has received praise for the updated ride system, but criticism for relying heavily on projection technology and a lack of moving props, and no animatronics. Disney, if you're listening, we just love our animatronics. Give us more. Yes, Phantom Manor. Now, this ride was my absolute favorite ride as a kid. Guess I was always a bit weird and fascinated by the gothic and macabre things, especially the way Disney presented them. The first contact I ever had with the Haunted Mansion-style attraction was Phantom Manor, and one of the reasons it was even more terrifying to me as a child was that the, nar <laughs> was that the narration at the beginning was in French, and I had no clue what that guy was saying. Something that countless horror films have proven is sometimes the unknown is the scariest thing ever. <laughs> this is something that has been adjusted in the new version of the attraction, which just reopened its freshly creaking doors after the longest refurbishment in the history of the world, 16 months. Now there's a plethora of information out there on Phantom Manor, which was a major aid in putting together this episode of the podcast. But because of the sheer quantity of information out there, I'm a bit terrified that I missed someone's favorite historic tidbit. <laughs> Let me know later in the comments if I messed up. <laughs> Phantom Manor's exterior differs quite a bit from its American counterparts. As Walt Disney originally put it, let us take care of the outside and the ghosts of the inside. Walt only wanted pristine and new buildings in his park, likely to distance himself from the rundown amusement parks and fairs at the time. But Disneyland Paris faces a unique challenge. We've got parkgoers that speak five different languages. And not everyone speaks English or is bilingual or multilingual. And more often than not, the mere name of an attraction is not enough to communicate the experience visitors can expect. To remedy this, Imagineers went back into the archives and came across Harper Goff's original sketches and concept art for the Haunted Mansions. Specifically, the ramshackle Victorian mansion on a hill that was scrapped for Disney in California was chosen as a good fit for Disneyland Paris. Shapes and color, well, and generally nonverbal communication transcend the language barrier. Therefore, having a dilapidated looking building would clearly indicate what you're about to experience is something creepy and perhaps even frightening. 
Over time, several design ideas were incorporated into the manor's exterior, and it evolved into the near-symmetrical Second Empire-style mansion we know and love today. The Fourth Ward Schoolhouse in Virginia City, Nevada was a major source of inspiration for the Imagineers, and if you look at the photos online, they really do share a similar structure, although the Fourth Ward School exterior is perfectly maintained. Another source of inspiration was the manor from Alfred Hitchcock's movie Psycho. One big difference is where the Phantom Manor is located. Whereas the Haunted Mansion counterparts are located at New Orleans Square in Disneyland, Liberty Square, Walt Disney World, and interestingly enough, Fantasyland in Tokyo. Fun fact about the latter, by the way, Fantasyland was chosen because in Japanese culture, ghost stories coincide with fairy tales. Tony Baxter and his team of executive designers decided that Disneyland Paris would have no New Orleans Square, no Liberty Square, so where do we put the attraction? It was Jeff Burke, who was the lead of Frontierland, then still titled Westernland, who came up with the solution, proposing placing the manor in the park's Old West section, where it stands today. <laughs> its location has led to a major change in the grand finale, which we'll touch up on again in just a bit. Here's Jeff Burke on how he was put in charge as the lead for Frontierland. Quote, When Tony acknowledged my interest in the lore of the Old West while discussing Phantom Manor, he asked if I would like to design Frontierland, and that's how I was put in charge of the land. End quote. Taking the European enthusiasm for the American West into account, Imagineers decided to expand Frontierland into an exciting homage to the history of the American West. Tom Sawyer's peaceful island, which traditionally resides in the center of Frontierland, was replaced by the action-packed Big Thunder Mountain Railroad Island. If you're interested in the history of Big Thunder Mountain, be sure to check out our previous episode on the topic. Most of Frontierland was going to be home to the gold rush town of Thunder Mesa, the name being a reference to a discarded Mark Davis attraction originally intended for Walt Disney World. Jeff Burke again, quote, we set the story of Paris' Frontierland in the American Southwest of the mid to late 1800s. Then we modified each attraction to support the setting and time frame. For example, Big Thunder Mountain, which visually anchors the land with the look of Monument Valley, also represents the excitement and spectacle of the Gold Rush era. End quote. Jeff Burke and the creative team designed an elaborate backstory that connected the area's attractions, shops, and restaurants. The story told the rise and fall of Thunder Mesa. In this storyline, the Phantom Manor is the home to the gold mine's owner, Arthur Ravenswood, who had fallen on hard times and whose stately manor house faded along with his fortunes. Over the course of Frontierland's development, Arthur Ravenswood is a tribute to American voice actor and bass singer Thurl Ravenscroft, who we all know and love as lead singing bus. You know, the grim grinning ghosts come out to socialize. Okay, I can't sing. <laughs> During development, the story was simplified and the character of Arthur and Henry Ravenswood were merged into one, leaving only Henry Ravenswood. Naming the attraction also posed a challenge. Would the multilingual audience understand the Haunted Mansion? Many options were considered, including translating the name into French, and after much deliberation, the Imagineers settled for Phantom Manor, which had several advantages. The most important being that it was similar enough to the French word fantôme and manoir to be understood at a glance. Here's what Craig Fleming, show writer for the attraction, had to say on the subject. Quote, Le manoir de fantôme was proposed, but we decided to keep everything in Thunder Mesa in English. Believe it or not, one of the proposed and rejected names was Ravenswood Manor. End quote. 
These adjustments to the original Haunted Mansion attraction concept were just the beginning. Another consideration had to be given to the ghost host. It wouldn't make much sense to have a constant narration throughout the ride if it was only going to be understood by a portion of parkgoers. Instead, the Imagineers included a cast of reoccurring characters that would visually convey the attraction story throughout the ride. The characters would be the eerily abandoned bride, who would appear only briefly in the original attraction, and the ghost host himself, who also took the shape of an evil presence known only as the Phantom. The original story as it would play out during the ride went that the Phantom killed the bridegroom by hanging him in the attic, leaving the bride to haunt the house for all eternity. Now, this story was reworked and clarified during the refurbishment, and we'll talk about the updated version in just a bit here. Several stylistic adjustments were made to reflect European sensibilities. The Imagineers sought inspiration from a number of classic European works. The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leron, both the book and the musical adaptation by Andrew Lloyd Webber, were instrumental in determining the tone and feel of the ride. The character of Miss Haversham from Charles Dickens' Great Expectations was the inspiration for the image of an abandoned bride passing decades in her tattered wedding dress, waiting for her groom to return. Again, this is the original storyline, and in the updated version, it feels pretty much like Melody really enjoys her father killing off her suitors. <laughs> the Victorian-era illustration All is Vanity by Charles Allen Gilbert was the visual inspiration for the bride's boudoir scene. Visual artist Julie Svensson remembers that Fernando Tenedoras, her colleague, illustrations in particular were, quote, so comprehensive and correct that they were reproduced in the mansion down to the gels on the show lighting, end quote. Imagineers decided that the haunted mansion's usual grand finale through a gothic graveyard would neither fit the western theme nor would it impress European audiences who were used to their own magnificent gothic architecture. So the graveyard was replaced by the nightmarish image of an earthquake-ridden Old West ghost town, with a decapitated spirit welcoming visitors while coyotes bay in the sunset and joyful spirits meet in the saloon. However, the graveyard concept was not completely abandoned. A boot hill cemetery was placed adjacent to the Phantom Manor, which is surrounded by eroded and dilapidated stonework and landscaping. Fun fact. Why is it called Boot Hill? Well, maybe this is more of a macabre fact than a fun fact. <laughs> in towns of the Old West, the part of the cemetery in which desperados were buried was called Boot Hill, for criminals were often hung and buried still wearing their boots. Due to the often rainy weather in Central Europe, large portions of the queue area would be covered. Early concepts show that a grand carriage house would protect those waiting in line from the elements. This lavishly themed two-story structure made it all the way into the early model stages. When the steadily increasing budget was tightened, the carriage house was one of the first things to get cut. Today we have a simpler, but still very effective garden pavilion. Once the final look of the manor house and its surroundings had been determined, Svensson illustrated the mansion in all its pristine condition with a fresh white paint and a red gable roof. Svensson also created acrylic paintings of the bride herself as well as gorgeous new stretching portraits for the doorless chamber, redesigned to reflect the story's new characters and setting. Seriously, you guys, if you look up the original stretching room paintings for the Phantom Manor, they are so clever, and each one is basically a self-contained story. Now, since the refurbishment, the paintings have been updated to fit the new Melanie Ravenswood storyline, which are also amazing. However, the originals have their own intriguing charm. 
Show designer Christian Hope and his friend musician Marco Monahan created a first temporary soundtrack for the attraction, while the first three-dimensional models of Phantom Manor were being built. Sampling the classic grim grinning ghost tune of the Haunted Mansion in Walt's time and giving it an orchestral makeover that would convey the darker tone and dramatic story of Phantom Manor. Greg Meter, the attraction's audio producer, mixed the haunting demo with sound effects from the Haunted Mansion and a variety of other sources for early demonstrations involving scale maquettes. The iconic laughter recorded by horror movie legend Vincent Price for Michael Jackson's 1982 hit Thriller was a major source of inspiration for the phantom character of the attraction. Imagineers extracted the sound effects and mixed it into this first mock-up soundtrack. Greg Meter recalls, quote, Once everyone heard this, it became impossible to imagine Phantom Manor without Vincent Price's laugh. Fortunately for us, Vincent agreed to do the ride narration, end quote. Ex Atencio's original script was rewritten to reflect the new story and style of Phantom Manor, with a few parts in English and others in French. All safety announcements would be bilingual, in French and English, as would Madame Leota's incantations and the famous hurry-back spiel before you exit the attraction building. Actress and makeup artist Una Lind was hired to perform as Madame Leota and the Little Bride in French and English. Her epic and mysterious performance still haunts us today. In the spring of 1990, Imagineering invited Vincent Price to record the newly written ghost host narration for Phantom Manor. Show producer Jeff Berg and Craig Fleming, who directed Price's performance, used concept art in order to convey the mood of the attraction. Greg Meter, who recorded the session, remembers that Price, quote, was a nice guy to work with and very much enjoyed being involved in the Phantom Manor project, end quote. The narration was to be in French, and Price, despite being perfect for the role and tone, struggled with the French script. Craig Fleming recalls, quote, We spent three and a half hours working with the French script, and then, at the last minute, I gave him my English version, which he did in two takes, end quote. Price also recorded about a dozen different takes of his epic evil laugh, intended for the character of the Phantom throughout his appearance in the ride. Greg Meter mixed a tentative version of the actor's recorded lines with Christian Hope's temporary music in order to get a first idea of how they would sound in the attraction. Meter recalls, quote, At one point, Jeff Burke just sat there with a look of amazement on his face as he realized that the timing of Vincent's dialogue, along with the temporary music track, was so exact that it was downright weird how it all fit together so well. End quote. When Jeff Burke was searching for the right composer to adapt the music into a proper cinematic score, Fantasyland show producer Tom Morris introduced him to John Debney, whose name you may recognize from the It's a Small World episode, as he was responsible for reconfiguring the music for It's a Small World into a big orchestral arrangement. Debney, now already a popular film composer, had done a lot of work for Disney theme parks throughout the 1980s, and was more than happy to turn the classic Grim Grinning Ghost song into a lush dramatic orchestration. As Greg Meter remembers, quote, John took the original Buddy Baker Exitensio score along with the basic mood of Christian's piece and wrote what I think is probably the best Disney attraction score ever written, end quote. Debney's score was so flexible that the overarching melody worked in everything from a solemn funeral waltz to the eerie tinkling music box tunes. The soundtrack was nothing short of fabulous. And I can attest to that. It's to this day my favorite Disney attraction soundtrack. It's amazing. Although each show scene has its own distinct music style to underline its respective atmosphere, 
John Debney's score was arranged so that the soundtrack would hit the same chords throughout the attraction, creating a subtle and harmonic transition from one scene to the next. Debney's score was recorded in England at EMI's favorite Abbey Road studios. John Debney himself conducted the 60-piece orchestra, plus two pianos, a pipe organ, synthesizers, chimes, various percussion instruments, and a chorus. Debney himself played several of the solo instruments in another recording session, this time in California. For the music box heard in the queue, Debney initially considered recreating the sound with Celeste and synthesizers, but changed his mind in the last minute. Greg Meter recounts, quote, John Debney wrote out the notes on paper, and we had a guy who actually makes discs for music boxes create a custom disc of that piece of music. It was then played back on an actual music box, owned by media designer Glenn Baker. That music box and disc reside in Glenn's home, and he still plays it at parties and other special occasions. End quote. Glenn, please invite me to your party. <laughs> Inspired by Christine from Phantom of the Opera, the star of the attraction would be the bride herself, or Melanie Ravenswood in the updated attraction. Similar to how the appearance of the Phantom would be accompanied by music from a pipe organ and Vincent Price's distinctive laugh, the bride was to be acoustically represented by a solo soprano, with various moods and iterations as her story unfolds over the course of the attraction. Catherine Myring Lynch, originally a Broadway performer who was working in the lighting department of Imagineering at the time, was chosen to perform the bride's vocals. Myring Lynch recorded the dramatic soprano vocals under the direction of John Debney, while Jeff Burke provided her with concept art to clarify the mood of each scene. But mysterious things began to happen way before the manor opened its gates. As it turned out, after an entire morning of recording, the team discovered that there was something wrong with the recording equipment, and it had to all be re-recorded again in the afternoon. <laughs> really, the only other notable singing vocals in the attraction were not recorded for Phantom Manor, but for the Haunted Mansion in the 1960s. Yes, we're talking about the singing marble bus with Thurl Ravenscross as a lead singer. The transfer was made directly from the original master tapes, with some slight adaptations to match the newly recorded music. Here's what Greg Meter had to say on the subject, quote, It's not quite perfect, but it works well in context of the overall ride. There was a little moving around of the tracks involved, but overall, not bad for audio tracks recorded 25 years apart. Talking about how Paul Fries, the original ghost host narrator, made it into Phantom Manor right after this quick break. The mayor's spiel in Phantom Manor's Ghost Town finale is a sort of cameo appearance. It features never-before-heard excerpts from Paul Frey's original ghost host narration. Jeff Berg transcribed the lines of interest on a piece of paper which served as a kind of script in creating the final track. Seven isolated lines were chosen, some used in the Disneyland ride, others taken from outtakes which had never been publicly performed before technically making it a new spiel that was, at the time, over 25 years old. Most of the sound effects we experience in the attraction are actually not just recycled from the Haunted Mansions, but were recorded for Phantom Manor by Joe Harrington. Harrington learned his craft from Disney legend Jim McDonald, who was responsible for the sound design of Walt Disney Studios' earliest sound cartoons and the Haunted Mansion. Jeff Burke and his production designer Richard Brown supervised the sets that were being constructed in London by the Ackland Snow Production Design Company, who are best known for their work on the BBC. Imagineer Ken Gomes plus the Phantom Manor's authenticity by curating Victorian period pieces. He traveled to antique shops, 
auctions, and sales all over the world to collect a unique repertoire for their traction. Persian carpets and ornate European furniture would add sophistication to the sets. Custom props that tie in with the ride story were also being manufactured simultaneously. 10,000 construction workers were working hard to bring the Imagineer's concept to life. Or at least into actual buildings and landscapes over in Marne-la-Vallée, France. And for those of you who don't know, Marne-la-Vallée is the small town right next to Paris where Disneyland Paris is actually located. Marne-la-Vallée, Chessy, France. <laughs> the Omnimover ride system was being manufactured in Germany and the Netherlands. Once basic construction was finished, Jeff Burke and his production designer Richard Brown flew over to oversee the installation of Phantom Manor's show elements on site. Larger sets like the ballroom and grand staircase were built on location by the carpenters and artisans of Ackland Snow. As the construction and design of the attraction was nearing completion, Jeff Burke was asked to present Phantom Manor to a number of French officials. Not knowing quite how to present the attraction to them, Burke asked Greg Meter to prepare a demo tape of the show's soundtrack. Meter, who was still in the process of mixing the final show over in California, recalls, quote, It was a total guess on my part as to how long to make each scene last, as the actual ride vehicles had not been installed. There was no way to know how long you would actually be in each scene. Jeff simply put the tape in a boombox on his shoulder and walked the officials through the ride, letting the soundtrack do the talking, end quote. Ron Esposito was in charge of giving the manor its dilapidated look. Esposito took special care to make the wear and tear look as realistic as possible, as well as aesthetically pleasing. The team went so far as to consider French weather patterns, reasoning that bad weather comes in from the east, which meant that the right side of the facade would age more quickly than the rest. Simultaneously, the audio-animatronic characters, special effects, and animated props were installed and programmed. Paul Comstock, in charge of landscaping, also recalled installing the trees around the manor. Quote, we have a special way of moving trees in which we pass a metal rod through the middle of the trunk, tie ropes to the rod to lift the tree, and then later fill in the hole. End quote. When Disneyland Paris construction workers first tried it, the steel rods they used were too soft and bent when they started to lift the trees. The ones that had died as a result of these failed attempts were placed around Boot Hill. Comstock again, quote, On the bright side, the pear tree we planted near the entrance to the Phantom Manor, we exposed some of the roots to lend it an air of mystery, survived very well, end quote. Greg Meter came over from California for a final audio check and to make some last-minute tweaks. Meter recalls, quote, Jeff and myself would ride the ride and decide that we needed to add some extra sound in order to help the transition from one scene to another, end quote. In some cases, mechanical noises had to be addressed. The ghostly piano in the music room was completely drowned out by the air jets used to move the keys. One major change to the Riot soundtrack that would be made several months later was the narration. French cast members, perhaps tired of having to translate Price's narration for non-English-speaking parkgoers, were pushing for French-language spiels. As Vincent Price's original take of the French script were deemed unusable, Jeff Burke and show writer Craig Fleming consulted Marty Scholar and Tony Baxter to come up with a solution. After much deliberation, Gérard Chevalier, a French actor who had already recorded several voices heard in Disneyland Paris and had dubbed Vincent Price in the past, was chosen to re-record the spiels in French. Jeff Burke recalls, quote, Before we went into recording with Mr. Chevalier, 
It was decided that Craig and Theory would craft a shorter, functional, less story-focused spiel. I felt John Debney's music was the real narrator of the traction from the very first scene. End quote. Vincent Price's distinct laugh would remain in the attraction. As Craig Fleming said, quote, Vincent's fee for the recording session was $10,000. So you could say that Phantom Manor has a $10,000 laugh. End quote. <laughs> That's a good laugh. To be fair, though, in the updated version, they are using his narration, so they got their money's worth at the end. <laughs> Shortly before the park's grand opening, Tony Baxter took then-CEO of Disney Michael Eisner on a tour of the park. Baxter was slightly worried of what Eisner might think of the Phantom Manor, considering it was a significant departure from previous haunted mansions. At the end of their tour, they finally approached the manor and Baxter was braced for anything. At that moment, Eisner's teenage son was exiting the attraction and enthusiastically stated that Phantom Manor was the best haunted mansion they had ever made. And that was all Michael Eisner needed to hear. He congratulated Baxter and went on his way. On April 12th, 1992, at 9.01 a.m., Disneyland Paris, then called Euro Disneyland, officially opened and Phantom Manor welcomed its very first visitors. So one cool design detail is that if you're looking at the manor after dark, notice the windows. Every once in a while an eerie silhouette of a presence can be seen moving from room to room with a candle in hand. It's just such a cute little touch. Now, before we get to the updated version of the attraction, here are some ride statistics. The track has a length of 785 feet, that's 239 meters. It's an Omnimover type dark ride, approximately 1 to 3 riders per vehicle, and has a duration of approximately 6 minutes, with 92 animatronics. You guys, we have been so patient. Finally, after more than a year of refurbishments, we got the new and approved Phantom Manor. Now Imagineering updated several elements of the attraction, most for the better. The single epic fail was the ballroom music, which has thankfully since been restored to Debney's original score. So what happened was, during the soft opening, parkgoers were shocked when passing through the ballroom that the iconic score was gone and replaced with the Haunted Mansion's ballroom music. Which, don't get me wrong, I love the Haunted Mansion's score, but it just doesn't work in Phantom Manor. Like, at all. Especially since Debney's gorgeous score had these perfect transitions from scene to scene, which are completely lost when you combine it with the Haunted Mansion's music. Well, apparently Disney got so much crap for it that the original ballroom audio was restored within... Gosh, I didn't... I don't think it even took a day. Ah, <laughs> uh, fellow Disney fans, how I value each and every single one of you that went and complained to guest services. Thank you for sticking up for those of us who could not be there in person. I love you. Now let's get all that negativity out of the way. <laughs> Here are the top five amazing new things you can look forward to in the updated attraction. Number one, the updated story. Yes, so it's been clarified, Henry Ravenswood is the Phantom and his daughter, Melanie Ravenswood, is the bride-to-be. Here's the new attraction story as stated on the official website. The Curse of Thunder Mesa Strikes Again Henry Ravenswood was a western settler who struck gold in Thunder Mesa. With his riches, he built a grand mansion on a hill where he and his family lived happily for many years. That was until Henry's beautiful daughter became engaged to a miner who planned to take her away. Henry viciously disapproved of this and vowed to scupper any chance of them being wed. But then a mysterious force, some say a curse, struck Thunder Mesa in the form of an earthquake, killing both Henry and his wife. 
Shortly after the earthquake, Henry's daughter was due to be married, yet her husband-to-be never showed, leaving her sat alone in the ballroom of the manor. Hours, days, months, years passed. She never took off her wedding dress or dropped her bouquet, but instead wandered the house aimlessly, singing lost songs of love, hoping her fiancé would arrive, all whilst an evil phantom stalked her every move, mocking her devotion. Who haunts the hallways of the manor today? What happened to the fiancé? Who is the mysterious phantom? You'll have to find out yourself at the Disney Phantom Manor. Number 2. The amazing new stretching room, with all new portraits that again underline the newly clarified story. My favorite detail is how Melanie disappears from the portraits, and of course hearing Vincent Price's original English narration is also a plus. I'll be honest, it took some time for me to get used to the jumping back and forth between the English and French narration. It felt a bit hectic at first, since now the narrators are always speaking, before there were longer pauses which let Debney's score shine. One thing that I was wondering was if it would have been better for the cast member to be able to set the spiel's language like they can in the Tower of Terror, so have one ride in English and the next ride in French, based on the people who are riding the attraction. However, there are obvious advantages to having both a French and English narration that way, everybody understands a bit. Number 3. New Lighting Since the Phantom Manor is the epitome of what we expect from a dark ride, implementing new LED and projection technologies made a huge impact. Colors really pop, show scenes look fresher than ever, and the animatronics are lit better than Britney Spears during her heyday. <laughs> Number 4. Melanie's Mirror Appearance Ultra creepy, probably as close as the attraction gets to a jump scare, she suddenly appears in your carriage asking for your hand in marriage, which adds a dark twist to her character. So far, all the blame for her perceived misfortune has gone to her father, the Phantom. But in the mirror scene, it's made to appear as though she enjoys the twisted game of having her suitors murdered. And last but not least, number 5. Teaching an old dog new tricks. The thing that I love most about the refurbishment is that Disney made it happen. As in, they are taking care of a classic attraction and showing it some love by upgrading the technology and putting the time and money and effort into something that honestly won't attract a whole lot of new parkgoers. Like, for example, a completely new attraction would. And yet, they are working hard to maintain a high quality level in terms of attraction experience, storytelling, and special effects. Having been to several theme parks, as a guest, you instantly feel once you're on an attraction that's been neglected in terms of maintenance and upkeep. And it really breaks immersion, and it's just, well, sad. So props to Disney for keeping the classics fresh. You do you, girl. So that's my take on all the newness. Let's take a look at what our fellow parkgoers and Airmagic listeners have to say on the subject. Here's Niels from Capturing Disney Parks, who you definitely know from the previous hotel episode where he gave us some amazing insights on the hotels at Disneyland Paris. Hello Eric and all Airmagic listeners. This is Niels from Capturing Disney Parks again. I've been on Phantom Manor last weekend. That was Star Wars Day, May the 4th. And I have to say that I was very happy to have this every trip must do right back. The manor and garden were fully refurbished and touched up, and it looks gorgeous again. I can imagine that this was quite a difficult job, since creating something new that looks convincingly old won't be easy. I love the English narration, not only because it's Vincent Price, but also because I'm Dutch and I don't understand much of French. The overall lighting has been upgraded too, and it adds a lot of magic to the experience. It's really well done. The stretching room is another great upgrade, with beautiful new stretching portraits, clear stories, and again, great lighting. 
in the past, I remember that they let in a lot of people and uh, we had to squeeze in, move towards the dead center of the room and a cast member then walked around the people to make sure they stayed in there. Usually with some funny, frightening jokes or a sudden scare action, but that wasn't the case when I got on it last weekend. They let in small groups only, giving enough space to stand comfortable and see old paintings and to comfort little ones. I think there wasn't a cast member traveling down with us too. When you board the Omnimover vehicles, you can now see the ghost bride, Melanie, and that's a really great extra. Really nice done. And she also has a special request to all riders in a mirror room, which looks and sounds fabulous again. They eliminated the old hitchhiking ghost effect, while I would have preferred the combination of the old effect and the new one. But the new ending certainly is very, very cool. Tip, if you are with two adults and one child, it's nicer to write in two Omnimovers. So split up as two and one, and that way the end sequence effect works better. I can't wait to go back on soon and discover more of the new and updated effects. There's so much to see. And Mickey is still meeting guests with a photopass photographer in the new gazebo in Phantom Manor's garden. He's wearing his beautiful manor outfit, of course, so make sure to check that out. A final note, the new FastPass entrance is not yet in use. Thank you so much, Niels. Those are some great insights. It's so interesting to hear that the FastPass entrance is not yet operational. I wonder when they're going to start using it. One thing that always amazes me is how good Disney is at making new things look totally old. Ah, yes, and the new portraits in the stretching room. The way Melanie disappears out of the portraits and leaves her suitor standing there alone is probably one of the most impressive effects in the park. Also, I love that you mentioned that the group size that enters the stretching room has been reduced. The experience is so much better when you have a bit of space and can enjoy all the portraits. I was never a fan of getting stuffed in there like a sardine with zero personal space. I really hope they keep this new implementation going over time. Herbert from At DLP Celebration also sent him some great thoughts on the updates. Hi Eric, my thoughts on the Phantom Manor refurbishment are a two-sided coin. As I love Phantom Manor with all its details in story and design, I was a little shocked when I first heard of the changes in the storyline. Having the chance to ride the new version a few times on its reopening night and thinking about the story changes made, I come to the conclusion that I still like it, but it has lost a bit of its mystery for me. The negative aspect is that the reveal of Henry Ravenswood as the Phantom happens way too early in the storyline and is too obvious, with a new painting in the lobby. The mirror scene would have been perfect for that, seeing Henry behind Melanie and the Phantom's face in the mirror. Also, I'm not a fan of the new mirror. They should have kept the style of the old one. The alternation of the soundtrack during the ballroom scene was also something that I dislike. The Haunted Mansion score just doesn't fit there. Thankfully, Disneyland Paris reacted to the criticism by bringing back the original soundtrack a few days later. The biggest disappointment was not having a floating Madame Leota in the seance room, which I really hoped for, maybe next time. Changes in the story may make it easier for regular guests to understand the attraction, but as I said, the new story is a little bit too straightforward in my opinion. With all this criticism, let's see what I have to say on the positive side. The matter never looked better. The holes in the roof and the broken balcony are great enhancements. And the lighting outside is great. I love the now transforming lobby, the new pictures in the stretching room, and in the gallery. And adding the bride to the boarding scene makes it more vivid. On top of all this, Vincent Price's narration is partly back. I awaited that for years. The effects in Ghostly Thunder Mesa no longer look outdated, and placing the bride into the Doom buggy is a nice change too. I wish Disneyland Paris had added a photo spot here. 
At the graveyard, a nice effect also returned, the heartbeat in the metal coffin. The reopening night was by far one of the best events ever at Disneyland Paris. It was a fun night. The manor had been very well lit up and added fog effects brought up a spooky atmosphere. And after a long time, the Phantom and the Bride were back as spooky face characters. Two thumbs up. This kind of night event would be a fantastic addition for a Halloween soiree. Or maybe another Phantom Manor annual passholder night? I enjoy listening to your podcast. What I like the most is setting every episode on a specific feature. Go on, you're doing a great job. Magical wishes, Herbert from DLP Celebration. First of all, thank you so much, Herbert. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, I totally agree. I love the detail of the heartbeat in the metal coffin. I mean, what a subtle way to enhance the experience and just add some immersion. I also think it's really interesting that you mentioned that revealing Henry Ravenswood early on is a bit flat. In terms of subtly, I definitely agree, but I think it's also very plausible that this was done to make it just as easy to follow as possible and just reiterate that he's the Phantom and just restate it over and over and over again throughout the attraction. So that, I guess, mm, <laughs> more distracted park goers will still get the gist of it. If this was the right way to go about it, I don't know. I mean, I'm personally a fan of subtly, but I'm also kind of not sure with that one. I also completely agree that a floating Madame Leota would have been amazing. I'm actually kind of surprised that nothing has really changed in the seance scene. And seeing the bride stand there facing the window while you entered the buggy is super creepy. I love it. Like she's turned away from us and there's just something super eerie about someone facing away from you in a different direction. You can't see their face. It just adds a lovely bit of mystery. Thank you so much, you guys, for sending in your thoughts. If you would like to share your thoughts with us on an upcoming episode topic, I usually post these on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Feel free to share them with us either in text form or also in form of an audio recording like Niels did. And over one thing, I really enjoy listening to your guys' thoughts and hearing your voice. And you really don't need a complex studio setup. You can make your recording simply on your smartphone in a quiet room and send over the mp3 file. We're gonna skip this week's listener question again, you guys. I'm sorry. It's just we've been, we're going over time here a bit. But feel free to send them in if you have any. I'll be sure to get back to you. Please make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or whatever the platform of your choice is. And we would so very much appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review on your favorite platform. It really does help out a lot, you guys. Thank you so much. Also, thank you to ravenswood-manor.com, wdwnt.com, doombuggies.com, the book Disneyland Paris from Sketch to Reality, and salonmickey.wordpress.com, all of which are the excellent sources for the information compiled in this episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. For Air Magique, this is Eric. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Air Magique is an unofficial podcast made with love and is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries.